Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm Andy Wood. Thanks for holding the fort last week, Andy. I enjo- oh, yeah. I enjoyed the episode. I enjoyed listening and learning. I didn't really put any, any preamble explaining your absence and left it to listeners to try to come I was just it. stuck on a writing job and couldn't get out of work. That's what it was. Well, you missed out. Your loss. I did miss out. I've been enjoying reading lost. the book. I thought it was great. I thought you did a great job talking to him. Oh, thank you. I, I'm going to jump straight in and get our guest on because this is a new... A new visitor to LA, a recent it's New true. York to LA transfer, and our mutual, a mutual friend of ours basically hooked us up. Went like, "You're a comic who does science things. He's a comic who does science things. You should meet." Yes, you two will either hate each other or love each other. Yeah. So we fought for a while, <laughs> and now and now we we're deeply in love. Yeah. It's an uneasy truce. It's Chris Duffy. Hey, Hello. Chris. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for having yeah, me. Yeah, thanks for coming here so early. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. I'm very glad to have you on the show. Uh, Chris, why don't, why don't we just jump straight in? Because sure. what's, you're a comic. I you're am a, a comic. You're a comedy writer. Comic, comedy writer. But you also sort of stumbled into the science yeah. world. For seven years, I hosted a, um, a podcast and public radio show called You're the Expert, where I interviewed uh, with... I interviewed scientists about their work and why it was important. So basically, three comedians on a panel would try and guess what a leading scientist did. And then uh, once they figured it out, we'd talk to her about why her work is important and matters and uh, what's new and exciting in the field. So very, very similar yeah. in yeah. terms of my interests. I don't know how that's escaped my... I like the premise a lot. Yeah. It's called You're the Expert. You're the Expert. So, And we're on this kind of somewhat strange hiatus at the moment as we apply for grant funding, which it turns out takes longer than you'd think. We've uh, we've never tried to do that in America, say, but that is what got us to Australia. Oh wow! For, we we could probably if we we cut back on the dick jokes, maybe we could. Are we grant eligible? You think <laughs> there are probably dick grants? I'm sure there's a grant for that. Uh, it just takes a long time, is what I've learned. I thought it was like we'll just pause for a month, and then it was like okay, well, it's been a year hiatus now. Uh, oh, speaking of that, let's get on our uh, Australia. I guess it's not to the point yet that we have to ask our listeners when when and if they want to see us, but uh, we are working on another. another I, yeah, I think there is us. a oh. high possibility of getting back out there at some point Very in cool. 2020. And the people of Australia get to vote on whether you come or not? They did last time, basically. I mean, we just like, put, put, put out a Google uh, form, what do you call it, the Google questionnaire yeah. thing. Would you and, like to see us? And yes, if enough of you literally. click yes. yes. That, that was essentially how yeah. we did it, where we worked out which cities we had the possibility of filling out a room oh wow i kind of love that's kind of like wasn't there a thing where at one point there was going to be i think a pitbull concert at any walmart in america and then people (laughs) teamed up to send him to the furthest one away in alaska (laughs) that's kind of like enough people in australia team up to be like no and then you're like oh i guess we stay here i've always considered us to be the pitbull of science podcasting absolutely how i heard you and that's (laughs) why i'm here does he have a catchphrase we should have said? M- right? Mr. Worldwide? Okay, Mr. I was trying That's to think right. how to yeah, work it there, in. There is something he does like that. <laughs> Dr. Worldwide. That's the science version. Okay. Thank you so much. And I'm guessing Miami references. Is he from Miami? He's from okay. Miami. He's. I feel like he's technically he's from the world. Oh, and why? But, um, but Miami, Miami is very much a subset of that. Yes, yes, yes. It's kind of a square rectangle, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris, so how what is, what is your background in science? How did you end up hosting that show? What? Yeah, um, I, I feel like I you both have actual science degrees, right? Yes, just about. Okay, so I am not in that ballpark. I I have a degree in basically journalism, mm-hmm. and uh, but I've always been really interested in science and really. Um, I just like learning. I'm completely like, uh, 
I'm the nerd where I'm like, I love school. Give me homework. <laughs> I really truly am. I'm like, what do I like to do? Forget TV. Give me a book. Um, and that's not a joke. I don't know why I said it in that voice. Um, <laughs> and in college, I lived with uh, a group of people who were all engineers. I was the one English major. And Whose choice was that living situation? It was just like a friendship one. And then okay. afterwards, we were like, huh, it turns out that you're the one that doesn't do things that are practical. Hmm. And uh, one of their favorite things was always to try and have me like explain to them what they were studying or what they're like. Oh, they were dicks. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, but they were like, you don't, you think you know what I do. Why don't you explain my, yeah. my dissertation? And, um, and then after, uh, after college, I lived in, I was teaching fifth grade in Boston and I lived between Harvard and MIT. So I would always meet these like very smart people who are working on PhDs and doing research. And, uh, I was just always so interested in hearing what they were doing. Mm. And that was kind of, basically it started because I was doing shows as a stand up comedian and kind of felt like, oh, it's fun to make people laugh. But like, what am I talking about? And then I would meet all these people who did these incredible things and felt like they had no platform. And I was like, we should combine forces. So that's how You're the Expert got started. Oh, that's great. So it started in Boston. Yeah, it started in Boston. And it was on um, WBUR, the Boston NPR station. And then kind of grew as a podcast because that's just how most people were listening to it. So Mm -hmm. then we started touring it and it kind of became this thing that led to my first TV writing jobs and kind of from there, everything took off. That's awesome. So yeah. you would just you would just meet people in a daily life, like at coffee shops in Boston, or how would yeah, you? Or like you weren't working at the same place. You weren't teaching where they were. Stuck. Well, like if if I was like at like a a party or a barbecue or something, you know, okay. I talk to someone, and I feel like this is probably. I'm sure any scientists who are out there can uh, or listening can relate to this. Is like I feel like often when you ask someone what they do, they're like, "I'm a biologist," and that's like the end of the conversation. Right. And I was right. the one where I was like, "No, no, no. What are you actually studying?" And then they'd be like, "Oh, I study how sea urchins mate." And I'm like, "We are going to talk all night, all I." <laughs> want to know is how that happens um and so i just kind of i kept feeling like there's something really fascinating about the more specific you get and also i'm just it turns out that i care less about like interesting topics and more about like people who are passionate about things like i've had yeah i'm like the fact that people do their dissertations on things like how does sand move in an earthquake and i'm like i love that you spent 12 years studying sand like let's talk about that and you're the first person in their life to ever ask them more than the first question (laughs) yeah and i think they always kind of think like are you making fun of me and i'm like no i'm just really interested so that's how it's all kind of come about for me that's great and now i have this like strange i like very much when i listen to your show i was like oh I relate so much to this, where we all now have this extremely strange collection of facts and tidbits of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Where I'm like, I'm not the expert on these things, but I've talked to enough people that I'm like, oh, I have a quantum computing ex. I have so many anecdotes about quantum computing and sand. You won't even believe it. Right. And a weird contact book as well. Where <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah. Just every so often a new story will come in and go like, oh, what's... what. What's the deal with this black hole? I don't understand it. I don't think the BBC news story is explaining enough. I will text an astrophysicist Absolutely. and get them to explain it to me. Yeah, where I'm like, oh, you want someone who's touched the world's largest mushroom? I know her. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Where is the world's largest mushroom? I believe it's like under a forest in Germany. I think it may be the entire forest underground is like one continuous fungi. But I'm, I'm not positive about the location. I've heard of something like that, like this picture, this underground network of... Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, I think it's and it just sort of pops acres. up above ground, but the, yeah, but then they realize that actually the whole thing is just one network and yep. the whole thing is one organism. Yeah, you're just seeing the tips of the iceberg, but they're mushroom tips. It's ironic that that's also the drug that makes you find the oneness and everything. It's like, <laughs> We're all one mushroom. Everything's connected. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. hippie. No, no, no. no. no literally, look, in this look, specific situation, everything is connected. Everything has been connected. Just about six foot below there. It's, it's just connected. It's not, I'm not. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not tripping anymore. Man. This is fully, I'm just factual. And they're like, all right, mushroom lady. <laughs> yeah. 
yes. trying to think of the, the takeaways for like party conversations from our eight years of doing this podcast. I think all I have is that the plural of octopus is octopodes. Oh, <laughs> that's, yes. that's my, my only like <laughs> go to takeaway from 360 episodes. Yeah, they're like oh, octopi. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Let me direct you to an expert on yeah. the fact who we spoke to for a very short amount of time <laughs> yes, and yes, absorbed yes. just enough knowledge. Actually, we I once interviewed an octopus expert on the show, and the thing that I've never stopped thinking about from that one is that she studied a species of octopus. I wish I could remember exactly what it was named, but what it does when it's um, threatened is it rips off one of its arms, throws the arm far away, and the arm waves like Jeff Goldblum <laughs> in Jurassic Park to try and distract the T-Rex. <laughs> so the arm waves, and then the rest of the body's like, gotta go! Clever girl. Yeah. Very clever. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, I, I think still, it, this was an episode from quite a while ago, but the the Matt Walker sleep episode mm. oh, with yeah. Kurt Brunner as well, the That's live episode from San Francisco. I think I got more facts and information from, that have stuck in my head from that one yeah. than any other. Oh, can you give me one? Check out and check out his, uh, by the way, check out his New York Times bestselling book that came out a couple of years later. I hold us nearly entirely responsible for the success. Pretty much. Yeah. That's what they say. It's... Do you do one podcast three years earlier? <laughs> you get that podcast bump. Uh, I would say the fact that every pretty much every living organism they've studied has something approximating sleep. Mm. That was what blew my mind the most. Was that everything, even bacteria and I think viruses as well, which aren't even are debatably alive or not, have a phase in their daily cycle where their activity decreases and a phase where it increases. Wow. So everything... So so sleep must be important at some extraordinarily primal, very early level. It's got to be so integral to the exi- to existence. There's something hilarious, too, about being like, oh, I can't infect someone with mono today. I did not get a good night's rest. <laughs> right. and you're like, oh, come on, mononucleosis. Stop burning the candle at yeah. both ends. Can't kill someone till I've had my coffee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah so just the fact from that that just sleep must be absurdly important, mm. which you also know from the fact that sleep from an evolutionary standpoint seems like the worst idea. Yeah. Oh, one, yeah. One third of Every living creature's existence, roughly. I mean, it varies from species mm-hmm. to species. But in humans, a, a third of your life is spent, and the same goes for other, most other animals, is spent in some state where complete you are, vulnerability. You are ex- so much more vulnerable. You are not doing any of the things that ensure or aid your survival. You're not finding food, shelter, a mate. Yeah. Like you can't reproduce during that time. You can't eat, drink. Maybe you can. Yes. What's that? Nothing. <laughs> Maybe you can't. <laughs> <laughs> you should see Andy yeah, sleep. I'm He's an efficient. I mean, it is highly erotic. <laughs> that sounds like such a Bay Area thing as well. Like, we <laughs> have <laughs> sleep. We have sleep. Oh, for sure. There is someone working on that right now. For like the next three months before the tech bubble bursts, they are fully funded. Yeah. <laughs> bimodal and bisexual and uh, yeah, sure. Another thing that starts with bi. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's I get into some stories, and th- this is probably, I- I'm going to say this is one of the less science stories, but also maybe, I think it might be a new record for the most emailed in story. Oh, wow. It's at least four. Are your emails oh, normally pleasant emails? Yeah, nearly always pleasant emails. Oh, that's so nice. I would say. I feel like public radio, um, I would occasionally get uh, pleasant emails, but almost always it was just angry corrections. Oh, we we get corrections a lot, but we actively encourage them, and they're corrections from listeners who are 
generally on our side or oh, in favor yes. of our yeah. show. We like I, I that's another nice thing. Like we will get someone we'll we'll get something wrong about viruses and then we'll get some microbiologist go out this is how it actually yeah. goes down. You know, that is nice though. I, I always think that even if someone sends an em, you know, an email in of any kind, it's just nice that they're listening. Yeah. But I got I well, the most emails we ever got in one day from the show is one time I made a joke where I said the moon's like a million times bigger than your face and people were like, Are you serious? <laughs> your face is so many times smaller than one million from the moon and I was You're like off the orders of magnitude. Yes, sir. exactly. And I I wrote back to people being like, thanks for writing in. Like, I was joking. And one person wrote back, it never even occurred to me that that could be a joke. Oh. oh Which is, that's what I look for Straight as a comedian. Because yeah. um, that'd be your opener. We'd give to the MC on the yeah. road. Like, his, his fans have said, it's never even occurred to me as a joke. Yeah, that's on my posters yeah. now. Yeah, it I, never even occurred to me. He could be making a joke. I think that's also the uh, the difference between... You were broadcast on the radio, so people would just tune into that station and get your show. Yeah, and they'd be like, may this may isn't be... the weather at all. Yeah, whereas people have to actively track down our show. So yeah, the vast, vast majority of our emails are lovely. I will say every so often, and I'm not going to even mention who or when or give a time zone, but every so often, we'll, most of the emails about specific guests are also lovely. Because they're oh, like, yeah. we love this person, bring this person back. Every so often we'll get someone who's like a dick about one of our guests <laughs> and go like, please don't have this person anymore. And please, at least they said please. Oh, I, I'm <laughs> Listen, when you write in that about me, just make sure you say please and thank you. Actually, I'm thinking there's probably not, there's probably no please in there. But it's, <laughs> I doubt it. I don't, doubt don't, don't do that. Don't, if, if you're someone who ever, feel, both for our show and for any other podcast, if you don't particularly enjoy the guests, and again, this is a blessed rarity, nearly always when we get an email about a guest, it's very positive and that's lovely. But just think about two things. Firstly, you don't have to listen to that episode. Maybe skip that episode. And secondly, the guest is almost certainly a friend of ours. You know what? Yeah. And I, you're being an asshole to someone that we like and know. And don't do not do that. Don't I, do that. I strongly disagree. I request that you all send <laughs> yeah. emails that say, My dearest Matt, please never have Chris Duffy on the show yeah. again. Sincerely, my right. name. For this and one also, week, we will read those as compliments. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> and also, you're probably wrong. For every... If you... Consider that maybe there might be three emails from other people who loved that guest. Hmm. You're wrong, and it's a bit of a dick move, and please don't do that to any podcast. Yes, there we go. Your PSA opinion, over. Your opinion is incorrect. PSA <laughs> over. Invalidated your... Uh, but no, yeah, most back of, to the story. The vast majority of our emails are lovely, and even the corrections are... And actively sometimes, encouraged sometimes and they love that they just want to tell us how glad they are that we got something right like about the uh, B-17 bomber and we got so many emails oh we really got we got that completely, completely right, right. completely yeah. they were like I, I worked on the bomber I'm <laughs> flying a bomber right now thanks for getting it right so many people both we, I think you haven't even seen all of them because Bruce uh, Bruce Payton or Patton sent this on Facebook as well. How many? I don't know how many. Have you got all the list of everyone who emailed it in? Oh, the uh, the story about to do. Yeah, um, I, they were in a row in the document. I believe Justin Broad definitely sent one of them in, as he often does. Um, who else did you see? Uh, let me see. Um, ra- uh, Ryan Parker, Bill Liam. from Delaware. Liam, yeah, just. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm sorry if we missed you out. <laughs> if if you're one of the people who sent this story in, uh, for some reason a large number of people thought we wanted a story about scientists taught rats how to drive tiny cars. <laughs> <laughs> yes, listeners, you are correct. You were right. You were you were very right. For some reason, you thought this was exactly up our street. It is, and our street is filled with tiny rats. Driving <laughs> no tiny parking. Cars. It's chaos. Oh my yeah. gosh. Uh. Uh, rats at a University of Richmond lab have learned to do something many Americans struggle with every day. 
This is the science alert version of this story. Okay, Successfully drive themselves to pick up food. The- <laughs> what? What? That's something that many Americans fail to do every day? Feels like an unconfirmed <laughs> report on that is, side. Is the entirety of America clinically depressed? Yeah. Why? They're like, here's a thing that many Americans fail to do. Drive a tiny rat-sized car to food. <laughs> Did you know? Every day, fewer than one American do this. <laughs> uh, the, and I quote, furry drivers were taught to navigate a custom-built rat car, and the findings suggest rats may possess a greater ability to learn tasks than previously thought. It was the brainchild of University of Richmond neuroscientist Kelly Lambert. Uh, Lambert and her colleagues created a tiny car out of an empty food container and retrofitted it with an aluminium bar and three copper bars for a steering wheel. Oh, it was like a Flintstone-style car. Almost. Yeah, the steering wheel and the floor create an electric current that can propel the car forwards. The rats, when properly trained, could control the direction of the car by gripping the left, middle, or right copper bar with their tiny paws. The scientists then train the rats by consist by constantly rewarding them with Fruit Loops. That's the breakfast cereal for our non-American listeners. I mean, this is incredible. This truly yep. is an American story. Every time they touched and moved the plastic car forward, Andy's loading it up on the big TV so that... Uh, Chris can see the video. Oh, I'm so excited to see this video. Eventually, the scientists went a step further and created a four-square-meter rectangular box for the rats to drive around (laughs) in. They gradually placed the fruit loops further and further away, encouraging the rats to fine-tune their driving. They learned to navigate the car in unique ways and engage in steering patterns they'd never used to eventually arrive at the reward. Oh, my (laughs) sweet car lord. We will, as always, link to this story... On the in the show notes and on probablyscience.com so you can click on the video yourselves. However you so amazing you thought it was, the video is better. Especially this one when it starts off with just him doing a, a, a hard, hard right turn yeah. before taking off towards the... This is It's incredible that they taught rats to drive cars, crash them into walls, and eat processed food at the same time. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> they are building an American. <laughs> <laughs> this is incredible. That steering job is very impressive. And so the whole point of this was to prove that rats could do things that were more complicated than we thought before? Well, it demonstrates the neuroplasticity of their brains, uh, which is the ability to to respond flexibly to novel changes. It says they're smarter than we thought, I guess. Or maybe as smart as as some of us already thought. So not all of the 11 male and 6 female rats in the experiment learned the same way. In an email sent to Insider... Uh, Lambert said the types of environment the rats were surrounded by affected the way they learned. The rats that lived in complex, stimulated environments learned how to drive significantly faster than those living in dreary, boring lab settings. Whoa. Those data suggest that we gain experimental, ca- experiential capital if we have challenging, dynamic lifestyles that transfer to learning acquisition. This seems like a way to kill two birds with one stone, right? We can stop self-driving cars and get rid of the rat problem by just having <laughs> rats drive us around everywhere. Oh, but as long as the app has an option to like let you have a like a chirp-free yeah. ride, yes. those, those chatty rats always want to. <laughs> you guys on Ruba? Yeah, yep. Yeah, Ruba. <laughs> I would be so happy if I went outside to see the car that I'd selected and it was one of these tiny cars with a rat full a beak full of fruit loops beak yeah. they don't have Amazing. beaks you're just throwing you're just throwing fruit loops ahead of you to get to okay like, keep going you got fr- one fruit loop on a fishing line ahead of the car that's all it takes this is and I'm, so incredible i would love it if they gave him all like old new york cabbie hats like those, uh... <laughs> yeah uh, lamb 
Lambert says, it appears the act of driving actually relaxed the rats. Like humans, Lambert said, the rats seem to have received some satisfaction out of mastering a difficult task. <laughs> but then, unlike humans, they didn't have to deal with traffic. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, well, you won't find rats driving around on city streets anytime soon, says this article. Shockingly. <laughs> Lambert and her fellow scientists said the experiment was significant because it suggests the rats' neuroplasticity, the ability for their brain to adapt and learn new tasks, may be far greater than people first thought. It's so funny that there's just totally coincidentally this Dr. Lambert has a controlling interest in the rat car companies. <laughs> She's a been forced to heavy investor. And then here comes the bit they have to add of like, what could be the use of this? Uh, she told New Scientist she believes the test could be made more complex and the data gathered from observing the rats could potentially be used to help study the effects of Parkinson's disease and depression. Mm. Above all else, the findings were a win for Team Rat. Editorializes ScienceAlert.com. A win for Team Rat. One of the rare <laughs> wins, honestly. They haven't had a good few years. Team Rat really has had a hard time of it recently. But Lambert said, I do believe that rats are smarter than most people perceive them to be and that most animals are smarter in unique ways than we think. Another interesting tidbit that was mentioned in the New Scientist article about the rats was that learning to drive helped relax the rats, which is the exact opposite of what it does in humans. Uh, the researchers assessed this by measuring levels of two hormones, corticosterone, a marker of stress, and dehydroepiandrosterone, which counteracts stress. And the ratio of that second one I said to that first one I said in the rat's feces increased over the course of their driving training. So that echoes uh, Lambert's previous work showing that rats became less stressed after they mastered difficult tasks like digging up buried food. They make it some kind of satisfaction uh, like we do when we get a new skill, which I think you mentioned, Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, lowering your stress by driving. I love as long also, as you're a rat. I love also that like you could be a rat in any study, and you're like, oh, thank God, we got the leader that teaches us how to drive cars and wants us to be less stressed. The other study, they chop us open and cut out our hearts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of all the things you do to rats, this one's one of the more benevolent ones. Oh, you got the Fruit Loop, learn how to drive a car <laughs> study. That's amazing. I got the one where they slice my genitals open and then stick my brain on a platter. <laughs> I found a couple of interesting stories just that I wa- we weren't going to do but I forgot to cover this one I forgot to put this in the doc did anyone send in the measles thing because this was a big story uh, measles I just put it at the top of the doc measles wipe your immune system's memory so it can't fight other infections mm, that's not good two new studies detail how the measles virus cause immune amnesia which is this one of the big problems with the fact that there's big measles outbreaks because yes. people have wiped their memory of the fact that vaccines work <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that measles is bad is here's an extra shitty way that measles is bad. It not only makes people sick, it also sneaks inside important immune cells in the body and wipes their, quote, memories, new research suggests. Once infected, the amnesic immune system no longer recognizes the harmful pathogens that it has fought off in the past. This means measles survivors can remain susceptible to dangerous diseases such as the flu and pneumonia for years to come, despite having weathered the initial illness. Mm. That is so scary. Yes. Double whammy. I had measles as a kid. I don't know. Did you? Yeah. Was that I don't know whether I predated the <clears throat> vaccine or whether that was yet another thing where my mum fell for a vaccine scam in. Mm. I don't think you predated the vaccine. Yeah. I don't know, but in my mind, that would mean that you were like 75. Yeah. Yes. But I'm not but, sure. But also, the vaccine is not 100%. You can, mm. you uh. can still get measles if you have been vaccinated. Yeah. Although I, th- I believe the vaccine does also reduce the severity of it. Oh. It reduces your chance of getting it and it reduces the severity. Do you remember getting it? Were you super? Yeah, super I remember getting it as a kid. Oh, it's well, very painful, right? I I I don't remember the specific. I remember I had I remember I had chicken pox and I had measles at some point. 
And I'm measles sure also has skin symptoms. Unless I'm now misremembering and I'm getting mixed up with having mumps, but I don't know how I would have got mumps either. Th- th- those are all part of the one. Same, same yeah. vaccine. Measles, measles mumps, mumps rubella. rubella. Yeah. I definitely never got rubella. Uh, <laughs> Not yet. What were the symptoms? Don't say what, what happens when you get I, measles? You, I, you get skin rashes and you get fever and stuff. And like measles itself is just is an unpleasant illness from mm. what I remember. Mm-hmm. But if it then goes to measles, I think encephalitis. I might be getting this wrong. That's when it gets really serious and you can get brain damage or mm. death. Oh. There's like a second level of measles. Again, uh, doctors and scientists listening to this, correct me if I'm sure, wrong. Yeah. Probably going to get someone writing and going, there has been no case of measles in, your, <laughs> in like Britain in 1980s at all and you're making this up. But I'm, <laughs> I have a memory of it. I may have a false memory. I'm pretty sure I did. The measles might have wiped your memory of the measles. Yes, Maybe. Yes. Measles essentially takes away their ability to efficiently pro- protect themselves, says Michael Mina, an epidemiologist at Harvard and co-author of the study. The paper pairs with another published in Science and Immunology, Using data from a group of unvaccinated children in the Netherlands, both studies reveal what scientists have long suspected. The measles virus cripples the immune system in a profound and lasting way. Hmm. What this has done is document exactly how the immunosuppression takes place and gives us a sense of how broad that immunosuppression can be, says Dr. William Schaffner, a professor of preventative medicine and infectious Wait, did you just say diseases Dr. William Shatner? Shatner, but... Uh, <laughs> I was yes. going to say that. I no longer believe this study. <laughs> He's like, in my time the off from Priceline, disease I've been conducting cause. a measles study. You don't want to know how. Uh, the findings also serve as a reminder that this year's record-breaking measles outbreak in the U.S. will have lingering effects. Those children are now living through a period of post-measles life more susceptible to other infections, he said. Worldwide, the number of measles cases have increased, has increased by more than 280% since 2018, according to the World Health Organization, which means hundreds of thousands of people who caught the virus this year may now bear the brunt of secondary infections as well. Hmm. Doc, scientists have long theorized that measles virus may cause immune amnesia, but they never knew how. They know that once the virus infects a person, it depletes the body supply of pathogen-purging white blood cells, the cell count rebalanced to normal levels once the infection clears, but even then, the affected person may remain immunosuppressed for years afterwards. Basically, the, immune, the measles virus transforms people into sitting ducks for other infectious diseases. But, paradoxically, it leaves robust anti-measles immunity in its wake. This, you got that. This is not a, not a joke, but it's interesting to think that you would be a parent who doesn't believe in vaccines, but would allow your child to be in a scientific research study. That's kind of fascinating. Yeah, although I don't know how... Yeah, I'm not sure how they... Uh... I assume there was consent. Yeah, I, I, maybe it's just looking at... Would you have to have individual... I don't know. Yeah. Oh, what, maybe one it's like is an intervention and then, study? yeah, the other is sort of a passive study. But I'm yeah, not sure. Not sure. But um... I just read... Um, this is also kind of a tangent, but I, I just read this book that was a really fascinating book called Antisocial by Andrew Morantz. And mm-hmm. it's all about um, basically the ways in which like social media companies claim to not be gatekeepers and so then people are able to exploit that and to put like you know fact-checked research at the same level as just like your crazy uncle's perspective sure, yeah. and uh, you know it's mostly about the political situation across the world um and how that's arisen from uh the growth of like techno optimism and like misplaced belief in that like you can you don't have to tell anyone what's real yeah. but but i think 
it's very parallel very parallel to the the ways in which like anti-vax stuff has spread where it's like oh like this doc all these doctors say the same thing but like it's promoted on the same flat platform as this person who's saying it's not real right yeah there's no context or the death of expertise is yeah. one of the outcomes or sim- or causes of all this and also yeah. just that they like physically look the same Right, like the, the, the Mayo Clinic. Right, it's text not like, looks exactly the same as like your crazy uncle's text. Yeah, where fifty years ago you wouldn't have access to a, a newspaper print, yeah, a, a printing press, so you couldn't have your dumb opinions look like presented in the same exactly. media. Exactly, it looks really well, different when you read an article pamphlets. in the New York Times versus like a handwritten chicken yeah. scrawl. Yeah. And now we're like, I guess they look the same. But I do remember, like every so often you'll read in history about he published a pamphlet that was that he spread far yeah, wide and yes. caused riots in the streets. Well, did you know that one of the first examples of fake news was this like um this i think it was in argentina uh, uh a person had published this like newspaper article that they had with a telescope seen uh creatures standing on their hind legs on the moon i think it was squirrels on the moon <laughs> and that like when it was on the front page of like almost every paper and then they were like oh that turns out it was completely a uh, sham that's not real at all so it, it, there's always been misinformation out there squirrels it's easier on the moon, now. fake news frantically I found something that I'm sure is much more recent. How long ago did you think this, this was? This was like hundreds of years, a hundred years ago. Okay. No, did no. you find it? No, I can't, but... Wait, just write uh, Argentina fake uh, fake news on the moon. Oh, no, that's not going to come up. That's not going to come <laughs> up real. Uh, uh, the first, write the first viral fake news. And it's not this article about how a squirrel has been found on Mars? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> Chris is now jumping uh, back try and mental forth floss. between our two laptops. So Early. here are some historic examples on, on the Wikipedia fake news page. Ramses the Great in the 13th century BC spread lies and propaganda, portraying the Battle of Kadesh as a stunning victory. Lunar animal said to have been discovered by John Herschel on the moon. The Great Moon Hoax of 1835. 1835. Yes. Oh, I the, love it. The New York Sun published yes, articles about a real-life astronomer and yes, made-up colleague who, according to the hoax, had observed bizarre life on the moon. The fictionalized article successfully attracted new subscribers, and the penny paper suffered very little backlash after it admitted the next month that the series had been a hoax. Such stories were intended to entertain readers and not mislead them. It's not fake news. It's satire. <laughs> it's satire. It's sat- we marked it in very small oh, print fuck. somewhere deep hidden. They, in those the- seem to have disappeared satire. a bit recently. They're, like they, I think yeah. Facebook, for all its many, many horrible sins, has got better at not letting people link to the the websites. They're like, we're like the Onion, but you're not. They're just yeah, publishing no a straight out lie. Joke. We're yeah. not funny Onion, so we're just lying. Yeah, it's. I actually find that this happens. This a actress lot. had a mastectomy. We're like the Onion. <laughs> <laughs> it is so much though. Like when you tell people that you're a comedian and they're not a comedian, people are like, oh, you want to hear a joke? Uh, my car, I got into a crash outside, and you're like, what? That's and nice. they're like. Oh, I didn't. And you're like, that's not a joke. That's just a lie. You lie. <laughs> jokes. Yeah, jokes are lies, right? Yeah. Lies are jokes. <laughs> lies are jokes. Jokes, jokes are diagram lies. Just a circle. Well, I'm glad that my half-remembered uh, version of that fake news was uh, true. Yeah, yeah, we will. Real news. We will link to that over on probablyscience.com. I think that if you, there, I think there's uh, a way to find a, a more in-depth article about it because the actual story is pretty hilarious. Here we go. There actually links to the Great Moon Hoax. On that's Wikipedia. the Great Moon Hoax. Yes, there. The great astro- the the headline read Great Astronom- Astronomical Discoveries Lately Made by Sir John Herschel, LLD FRS at the Cape of Good Hope. The anim- articles described animals on the moon, including bison, goats, unicorns, bipedal tailless beavers, and bat. <laughs> that was what it was: bipedal tailless beavers and bi- and bat-like winged humanoids who built temples. There were trees, oceans, and beaches. 
They were supposedly discovered with the aid of an immense telescope of an entirely new principle. <laughs> entirely new principle. <laughs> that was a direct quote. It shows you what you want to see. A beaver with no tail that can stand like a man. <laughs> Which is just, I mean, the tail is the defining thing of the beaver. What, sure. what even makes it beavery? It doesn't <laughs> have point, they're like, just it's a, a man with large teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> He's like, okay, the rest was a lie, but I did see a buck-toothed man. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like this is all um, like related to the imagery you would see in the, is it, um, Mel- how do you pronounce that early director's name? George Melier or something? Uh, like like the, the stuff that was in the movie Hugo or in the sort of parodied uh, in the Smashing Pumpkins video. You know what I'm talking about? Like no, the big set piece movies that were probably from like the 20s, silent movies. Uh, I, I know the kind of, yeah. It's the one with the thing that like, sort of flies stop motion the, animation yeah, stuff. The, the rocket crashes into the moon's oh, eye. Oh, yes, yes, And then yes. when they land on the moon, like, the creatures look like these drawings uh, from the Great Moon Hoax. Um, so maybe this is part of the public's conception of the moon for a long time. Um, so before the measles vaccine was introduced in the 60s, so there we go, the measles vaccine has been around for a good couple of decades before I was around. But you were born in 1930. That's true. And I'm on the moon. <laughs> I was born on the moon. Did I never say that? No, but I love your lack of tail. I really should have said that. Yeah, to be honest, the tail was removed. But an estimated 50% of childhood deaths may have been associated with infections that kids caught after surviving measles. Whoa, so that's the, uh, the biggest, one of the biggest risks of measles. is actually risk. not the measles itself, but the post. So to try and find out how it causes such havoc to the immune system, the... Authors of the new paper collected blood samples from 82 unvaccinated Dutch children. During a measles epidemic that hit the country in 2013, five of the children managed to avoid infection, but most caught the virus. They compared the children's blood samples collected before and after infection. Wow, so they even knew, like, they were like, these kids are probably going to get measles. We'll get their blood Mm. before that. But again, in to this see case, how their immune system had failed. In this case, unvaccinated kids who, like you said, why why would their parents have then been? But do take blood samples from. I know that's very very strange. Before we, there's something before nef- they get sick. Something nefarious about vaccines. But a man who wants my child's blood, yeah. totally fine. <laughs> the authors of the science immunology study examined the ch- children's white blood cells, namely a type of white blood cell, white blood cell called a B cell. When the body picks up a new pathogen, B cells build proteins that grab hold of the germ and hand it to another protein for destruction. They keep building these antibodies even after the pathogen clears so the body remembers, that's in quotes, the disease if it ever returns. Children infected by the measles virus lose many B cells trained to recognize familiar infections, the researchers found. 40 to 50 days after infection, when the virus had cleared, the affected children assembled a new army of B-cells to replace those lost, but it's unclear how effective the new, and again, quote, soldiers, are at fighting off specific infections. That may be a question for future studies. And then rather than taking stock of the B-cells, the authors of the study in science, published in science, went straight to the front line of immune defense, the antibodies themselves. Trillions of antibodies can be found in every point zero, in every microliter of blood. Many of these antibodies are produced by bone marrow, ce- marrow cells called long-lived plasma cells, hmm. which also perish at the hand of the measles virus. Using a tool called Viriscan, the researchers clocked which antibodies appeared in the children's blood before and after they had measles. The screening tool allowed them to time travel through the children's medical history and see what pathogens they'd encountered throughout their lives, but the measles virus erased much of that history. So that's yeah, the memento quick, of diseases. I yes. know they quickly regained new antibodies to fight off things like staph infections and flu and adenoviruses, probably because they encountered them more frequently. But other ones that you encounter less rarely, they have lost a lot of that immunity. Huh. 
It's like a, study. It's like, like a reset point in a video game, like losing all your uh, all totally. your stuff. Yeah, I was thinking of or like that um the uh, Apple like backup where you can like go and look at different. Yeah, what's yeah. it called? Time Vault or something like that. Uh, t- it is some play on time travel. I think like is it just time machine? No, time machine. It? That's what it is. Is it really? Literally oh, just time yeah. machine. <laughs> so Justin of Allwood tweeted that in, by the way, and I think a couple of other people might have sent it. There was another Twitter I love, story. But the person, I love the difference between the person who's like, you know what story they'd love? <laughs> Rats driving these cute little cars, and then someone's like, you know what else they'd love? Children becoming sick and dead. <laughs> All right. Well, this one is here's a story that was both. Um, it, tell Quite me it s- combines the two. Well, it's it's sort of serious and also quirky. Okay. That Lewis Goldberg tweeted at us. Uh, heat camera at tourist attraction spots woman's breast cancer. Whoa. Oh, yeah, Bunkers, I right? did. I remember Andy and I both stood in front of a heat camera when we were in Portland at the Science Museum and yeah. noticed that I have incredibly bad circulation. <laughs> That's right. Your hands and nose were black or yeah, something? Yeah, most people's like... hands are roughly the same color as the rest of their flesh, but mine mm. were just... It was like I had my hands amputated and had just like a black glove in its place. There was nothing there. But a trip to a tourist attraction in Scotland turned out to be a life-changing moment for one woman after a thermal camera detected she had breast cancer. Bal Gill was looking back over images from her trip to Camera Obscura and World of Illusions in Edinburgh, where she noticed a heat patch over her breast. After making an appointment with her doctor, she was diagnosed with early-stage breast cancer. But experts have said Jill Jill was... Oh, okay. Oh, no, Jill is her last name. Jill was lucky, and thermal imaging cameras are not effective in screening for the disease. Don't just go to the museum and stand in front of (laughs) them. Do go to real doctors and get your mammograms and so on. Well, it looks like I'm fine. The thermal camera didn't find anything. (laughs) But she... So this was more like a coincidence, right? It was pure coincidence. Oh, okay. Because I, I, I do love the idea now of, like, you go to the theme park and you get the photo of you at the roller coaster, and you're like, well, that was my checkup for the year. I'm good. I, checks out. I, I do know people who have been diagnosed with stuff by just like, hey, there's a weird, yeah, there are stories that come up like, oh, I look weird on this video or I, someone walked weirdly on TV and then doctors wrote in and go like, you need to get screened. For oh, that. yes. No, that happens for sure. Yeah, I think there's also there's a thing with your fingernails when they get sort of like clubbed. Like if you've seen someone like really bulbous the actual fingernails have like a sphericalness to them. Have you hmm. ever seen that? That no. can that's like a. a sign of uh like it's congenital heart defect or something i heard some story about some doctor seeing you know a coach or something in some uh post-game press conference and like said that that guy needs to go see a cardiologist right now and wow. he did have some yeah if you're listening to that and you didn't immediately check your fingernails truly well, i can't like, relate to you in any way yeah i think it's like what have you seen jeremy renner's hands i think he kind of has that I don't. Jeremy uh, Renner. By the way, Jeremy, thank you for listening. You need to see a doctor <laughs> now. You might. I mean, you might. Well, you know, speaking of Jeremy Renner, did you know that in uh, one of the last movies that he was in, he broke both his arms, and so they had him wear green casts and then green screened his arms in? No. <laughs> yes. 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 Google Google Jeremy Renner green screen arms. You'll see. And this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. He does have disturbing yeah, well, fingers. Well, those aren't his, but that's an example of. Uh, some of those pictures are him and some are not. Hmm. That, some of these pictures are him and some are just disturbing hands. But yes. do you see Jeremy Renner's green screen cast arms? Uh, what movie was it? Uh, uh, the Avengers, maybe? By the way, I've just found Endgame. someone else Endgame. who calls himself Christ on Twitter has also sent in the rat story. I missed that. Thank you. Like so many people sent in that story. I, I mean, if you that's know. a beautiful story. There was another story that a few people sent in. Baz Lovenberg was one on Twitter. And also, I think, who sent it in on by email? I believe Paul Muxworthy and maybe some others. Uh, migrating eagles 
racked up a huge data roaming charge. I saw this. This oh, yeah. is incredible, yes. By the way, the movie is Tag. Tag. Oh, yes. that's even better. He broke his arms <laughs> in the movie Tag. And he's so going to be the it movie, forever. Literally, so all the movies about like, his touching <laughs> things with your hands. That's very funny. And so it's not even to- like a sort of high, like, budget blockbuster Full of the visual effects kind of movie. No, no, and it's they literally have... a film about four friends running around trying to touch each other. And they had to they had to green screen his arms in. So the, his arms are uh, not. That's that's all special effects, baby. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, Thirteen eagles migrating south from Russia and Kazakhstan racked up hu- hundreds of dollars of data roaming charges when their tracking tags attempted to SMS messages from out of range. I mean, we've all been there. Yeah. The Eagles tags were designed to send four SMS messages with GPS data every day from wherever they were, so researchers could map their migration routes. But when a few of the Eagles took routes through remote areas of Kazakhstan with no mobile towers during their summer migration, the messages piled up and then were sent all at once as the birds arrived in Iran. Message rates in Iran are more than three times what they are in Kazakhstan, causing the birds to blow through the entire year's budget. I just love going back to the place that funded your study and being like, I am so sorry, but these eagles blew up our budget. Also, they checked into a motel and bought all the porn. (laughs) (laughs) They drank the minibar. We we forgot we should have only prepaid for the room, but we put the credit card on file and these eagles are on a bender. Do you have any idea how much a Twix costs in this hotel? (laughs) Oh, this is incredible. It also just kind of feels like the eagles were like, you want to study me? You can't study me. I'll fly free. Cost you thousands. <laughs> Scientists at the Russian Raptor Research and Conservation Network began to use crowdfunding platforms to pay off the bill and were able to raise more than $1,000, which was enough to pay off the fees. This is not a high-budget research project then. No. And put some towards future research. But then several telephone companies reached out to offer free or reduced-price services for the Eagles. Oh. And in the end, the researchers chose the option with the best coverage in remote areas, a special low-cost data plan from the Russian telephone company Megafon oh that would let the birds migrate for cheap. Was this guerrilla marketing the whole time? <laughs> really? Literally, that sounds like a sponsored content. <laughs> it really does, right? <laughs> They're like, luckily, our conclusion, in our conclusion, in our results section, you'll see that the best data plan for you, if you're roaming like an eagle, if you want to soar like an eagle, you should use low-cost. <laughs> that is wild. Also, that, I mean, that is the mark. I'll tell you what. I give the scientists a C, but I give the marketing intern at that oh. telecom company an give A+. Give that man a raise, yeah. Um, you did mention quantum computing at the top of the show, and there has been... Google has had a quantum computing milestone. The quantum supremacy. They have, yeah, they've claimed a breakthrough in blazingly fast computing. They have developed an experimental processor that took just minutes to complete a calculation that would take the world's best supercomputer thousands of years. The feat could open the door someday to machines so blazingly fast that they could revolutionize small, such tasks as finding new medicines, developing far, vastly smarter artificial intelligence systems, and most ominously, cracking the encryption that protects some of the world's most closely guarded secrets. I'd say that's second most ominously after the artificial intelligence thing, after listening <laughs> yeah. to your episode last yeah. week. Yes, definitely. It is... If computers could suddenly have a leap of intelligence that is that vast, but yeah, also yeah, all of all of encryption relies on the inability of computers to do things like factorize prime prime factorize huge numbers yeah. Yeah. quickly. But I'm just I'm definitely less concerned about them getting into my email than I am after hearing your episode of the uh, uncontrollable supreme beings that you yeah. try to control with your less powerful being. Something that decides to turn you into a paperclip because you asked it to make paperclips. Like, yes. I didn't actually tell you not. Yeah. Yeah. When he was like, oh, one thing that would be problem is if we were like, hey, can you help us get carbon dioxide out of the air? And they were like, great. We turned all of the oceans into sulfuric acid. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, you know what? One thing I love about the um, first of all, I think quantum computing is so cool. It's just like fascinating as a concept, and like I still it, don't get it. But uh, yes, well, this is the cool thing also. that I also love about it is whenever you read an article about it, especially in a place like the New York Times or like one of these like generally very like sober news places. Yeah. Whenever else they report, whenever else they report about science, they try really hard to make it seem like they truly do understand. But every article about quantum computing, at like paragraph four, is the person being like, "Okay, so let me try and explain this. <laughs> this is where it gets kind of weird. Normally, computers yeah. are one or zero. Here, they're one and zero. Also, have I ever mentioned that electrons are both a particle and a wave? Oh my god, my brain is melting. You could just see the person being like, "I toss my hands up yeah, and I have I, no idea." I, I understand it in the most hand wavy sense. But then going from that hand wavy sense to how you would actually make a quantum computer, I have no idea. Yeah. Oh, yes. But it's... I mean, it, it determines like probabilities of things more than actual uh, solutions to things, sort of, right? Or it is that not... Right. Uh, and it, it sort of relies on a few sort of weird mathematical quirks of the quantum world, where, like you said, it's sort of a, most, most standard computing... All standard computing effectively is... Uh, miniaturized and much faster and much more of them going on at the same time version of just a light switch being on or off. Yes. Mm -hmm. Or like a current being either going through a wire or not going through a wire. Yeah. And then a series of logic gates that either let them through or don't let them through depending on what the signals are. Yeah. But this is like... Whereas, oh, yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, this is like it It can... Because a quantum... A, in the quantum world, things can exist in multiple states at once and then collapse into one state when you look at it. Yeah. But then I don't know how you practically then make that happen and yeah. get an answer out. Now, if I understand correctly, this is Schrodinger's cat. So you just, what you do is you put a computer in the box with the cat and the poison. Okay. So as the cat right. is both alive and dead, it is solving the problems for you, and that is quantum computing. Well, yeah, and it, or, or just like an infinite number of monkeys in a box. Yes, but some of them are dead and some are alive, and you don't, <laughs> you know, don't know which, which one is alive. Shakespeare. Oh. If you give enough of them monkeys, they will eventually prime factorize this <laughs> immense number. All you know is I mean, one would. of these monkeys is Shakespeare and another is incredible at factorization. <laughs> yes. yeah. And if you ask one of them, he has to tell the truth, and one of them always exactly. lies, but you don't know which... Yeah. The trick is you have to touch the light bulb afterwards, oh, and yes. it was a glass box all the time. Oh, okay, it, <laughs> it was, was the an mother. Icicle. Yes, he stood on a block. He of stood ice. on a block of ice. Yeah. That's what it is. So I think if you don't understand quantum computing now, you probably never will. <laughs> based on that explanation, but uh, it is. I mean, just the idea. I remember learning this in like high school physics. Like our, I, I remember that we like learned the regular physics stuff, and then like one day our teacher was like, "Hey." You want to know something really wild? If you put electrons and you try and judge where they go, if you're not looking, they go both places. But as soon as you look, they only go one. And I just remember being like, oh, boy, that's not this is wild. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So this quantum processor, which, by the way, it has to be uh, you put the flat, fragile and volatile qubits which are both contain that's, values of one and zero simultaneously. That's the quantum version of bits, which is one or zero in a computer. Fragile and volatile qubit is also they, the name of my character in every um, Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> game. <laughs> it has to be cooled to very, very cold, near, uh, uh, very near to absolute zero. It looks like an upside-down garbage can, according to this AP News story. It must look like an upside-down garbage yeah, can. Out of which comes a series of tubes used to c conduct signals to a chip. The whole thing is stored in a cool chamber to protect the chip. Google says its quantum processor called Sycamore finished a calculation in 3 minutes and 20 seconds that would take the world's fastest supercomputer 10,000 years to do. 
It was a random sampling problem, similar to looking at the various combinations that could come from a di- from dice or a gambling machine. It has little practical value other than to test how well the processor works. So Chris Monroe, a University of Maryland physicist who's also the founder of quantum startup IonQ, said the most the more interesting milestone will be a useful application. Yeah, I love <laughs> that's underselling it. Huh, that's so interesting. You know what I'd love? If this had any practical value. Thanks, Google. Um, also, you know, I'm so relieved. If there's one place in the world that I would want for the ultimate most powerful source of knowledge to be, I'm glad it's uh, private company Google, who we all know we can trust. Right. The, um, it, it is great they just decided not to be evil and therefore they ha- yeah. literally can never be because they just made that their motto. Yeah, so they're like, we're not yeah. evil, but we are building the most powerful yeah. device ever known to man. But, but for specific values of evil, we are. Um, Google's findings has faced pushback from other industry researchers. A version of Google's paper leaked online last month. IBM took issue with Google's claim that it had achieved quantum supremacy, or the point where a quantum computer can perform a calculation that a traditional computer can't compete with within its lifetime. Their researchers say an IBM-developed supercomputer called Summit could actually do the calculation in two and a half days. Oh, 10,000 years. <laughs> Try two and a half yeah. days. Say it to Summit's face. <laughs> Google disputed IBM's claims. Whether or not Google achieved quantum supremacy, the research suggests the field is maturing. The quantum supremacy milestone allegedly achieved by Google is a pivotal step in the quest for practical quantum computers, says John Preskill, the Caltech professor who coined the term quantum supremacy. Mm. I I interviewed... Seth, Dr. Seth Lloyd at MIT, who's part of the Extreme Quantum Computing Group. They and, call themselves uh, Extreme? Extreme, yeah. Because they also, it. like, surf and... <laughs> yeah, 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 because he does most of his coding Skydiving. while he's on top of a plane. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really fascinating, yeah. He, uh, he, I, think, I think he may be one of the people who, started, who invented the first quantum computer. Very cool. Yeah, how old is it as a, as a field? It's relatively new, for sure. What was his name? Seth Lloyd. I'll put a link to that, and also this article by the guy who coined the term quantum computing. I'll put that in there. Quantum supremacy. Sorry, quantum supremacy. Seth Lloyd. All right. It'll all go in the show notes. I think we've got time to squeeze in. We, we're powering through stories. Yeah. Should we squeeze well, in a couple, of, one or two other? There's one I don't think would take too long that grabbed my eye as barely life science, but also just like very quirky. I can't believe no one else sent this in, but um, there's a dude whose stomach is brewing its own alcohol. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I feel like that requires more explanation for me because right now I just imagine like a a lot of steel containers inside his stomach and like a guy with a beard and a flannel shirt who's like, "Oh yeah. Well, I used to work in finance and marketing, but then like my real passion yeah. was microbrew." You don't you don't Very belly mi- brew, man? You belly brew? You don't belly brew? Oh, come on. <laughs> the microist of microbrew. Yeah. <laughs> I put the micro in microbrew. <laughs> so, yes, this man in North Carolina. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of course he's in North Carolina. It was either North Carolina or Colorado. There was no other place. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably Asheville, right? Yeah. Um, He was pulled over on suspicion of drunk driving. No, I'm not drunk. It's a little man in my stomach. (laughs) Police didn't believe him when he said he hadn't had any alcohol. The man in his late 40s at the time refused to take a breathalyzer test and was taken to a hospital where his initial blood alcohol level was found to be 0.2%, which is about two and a half times the legal limit and the equivalent of consuming 10 drinks an hour. Despite the man swearing up and down he hadn't had anything to drink, doctors didn't believe him either. This poor guy. This poor drunk guy. Uh, researchers at Richmond University Medical Center in New York eventually discovered that the man was telling the truth. He wasn't downing beers or cocktails. Instead, there was yeast in his gut that was likely converting carbohydrates in the food he ate to alcohol. In other words, his body was brewing beer. The findings were reported in a study in BMJ Open Gastroenterology. The man whose identity has not 
been revealed has a rarely diagnosed medical condition called auto brewery syndrome a- oh, abs wow. <laughs> a very rare syndrome yeah. auto brewery syndrome also known as gut fermentation syndrome and it occurs when yeast in the gastrointestinal tract causes the body to convert carbohydrates ingested through food into alcohol the process typically takes place in the upper gi tract which includes the stomach and the first part of the small intestine these patients have the exact same implications of alcoholism the smell the breath drowsiness gait changes fahad malik the study's lead author and the chief internal medicine resident at the University of Alabama at Birmingham told CNN, they will present as someone who's intoxicated by alcohol, but the only difference here is these patients can be treated by antifungal medications. Mm. So yeah, things weren't the same for this man after he completed a course of antibiotics to treat a thumb injury. His personality started to change, researchers wrote in the study, and he experienced episodes of depression, brain fog, memory loss, and aggressive behavior that was out of character for him. Three years later came that uh, suspected drunk driving arrest, and the man's aunt bought a breathalyzer to record his alcohol levels. She'd heard about a similar case that had been successfully treated by a doctor in Ohio and convinced her nephew to seek treatment there, too. This poor guy, like, no one believes. I wouldn't believe this if he told me it was a <laughs> no, disease. No, even hearing it in the article, yeah, auto brewer sure. syndrome sounds like, okay, come on, my man. Yeah, I got a... Yeah, does not sound real. Auto brewer syndrome, officer. No. I just always want to eat hops. <laughs> So his basic lab test turned out normal, but doctors found two strains of yeast in his stools, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, mm. a yeast commonly used in beer brewing, wine making, and baking, as well as another fungus. Now that sounds like some good tasting stool. Right. That's some delicious, <laughs> some uh, artisanal stool. Uh, the man was successfully treated at the Ohio Clinic and told to stick to a strict carbohydrate-free diet along with some special supplements. But after a few weeks, his symptoms started to flare up again. This time, no treatment seemed to work despite visits to numerous medical professionals. At one point, the man became so inebriated that he fell and experienced bleeding in his brain. Oh, Oh, no. Suddenly, this thing sounds not fun. No. (laughs) Up until now, I was on board. Uh, He was taken to a neurosurgical center where he spontaneously recovered in 10 days. Um, And in that institution, his blood alcohol levels ranged from 50 to 400 milligrams per deciliter. I don't know how that translates to blood alcohol, but... um, yeah, finally he sought help from an online group. Yeah, basically they believe the antibiotics he took years ago altered his gut microbiome and allowed fungi to grow in his gastrointestinal tract. That is bonkers. So was he cured so, or no? In that? Yeah, they used antifungal therapies and probiotics to help normalize the bacteria in his gut. Aside from one relapse, the relapse makes it sound like he's doing it himself. Again. Well, it sounds like he has like an alcoholic stomach right, and a right, normal right, right. rest of his body. I told you this is the last time. Uh, yeah, one relapse that occurred after he binged on pizza and soda without telling the researchers. Oh. Aside from that, it seems to be working, and he can eat pizza again. A year and a half later, he remains asymptomatic and has resumed his previous lifestyle. That is, I mean... Wild, right? Wow, that's totally yeah. wild. Also, there is just a huge expose about how breathalyzers are not accurate and how they uh, a bunch of states have had, to, have had to throw them out, and ru- a lot of people's lives have been ruined by false breathalyzer because like, they're not. a lot they of them are not... Cali- no, no, it's just that they're... They're used as like definitive answers, right. and so people are like their licenses get taken away. Um, but it turns out that many of them are like not calibrated correctly, or that they're they're not as reliable as people think they are because they don't they don't have the safety checks in. So, um, I believe it it was it just came out, but it was about uh, several states that have had to toss this out. It's a uh, the television show The Weekly has a. Okay. That's what the episode is about. It's want, really fascinating. I don't want to encourage... There is, dr- there is a New York Times article that says, these machines can put you in jail, don't trust them. Yes, but also, turns out, fungus in your stomach can put you in jail. Yeah, yeah. 
So, A, if you get pulled over, blame stomach fungus, and B, tell them... First of all, oh, well, first of all don't I, I didn't know we were turning this into a, yeah, how to get out of a DUI. Yeah, well, that's what it sounded like. You're like, I mean, not that anybody should be drinking at all and driving, but uh, it sounds like, yeah, if you do get breathalyzed, maybe try to see if they've had it calibrated recently. Oh, yeah. Well, I would also say, like... If you're sober enough to remember that. Yeah, if you're not, you shouldn't drink or drive, but if you get put in jail and you weren't drinking and driving, here's yes, the way out. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I didn't know if you're saying, like, people who had had some alcohol but it was below the legal limit but then it gave a false oh maybe that yeah as opposed to I, yeah i think it was false together or something that is that story about that guy is so scary it's i've never heard of this in my life i know i really if you to- asked me if this is a thing that could happen and i hadn't seen it in print on a uh, legit looking website much like yep. the one yes. your aunt always <laughs> <laughs> yeah i also do love though that they gave it such a straightforward name they're like what should we call this auto Brewer syndrome. According to this New York Times article, as well as them not being calibrated, there are even things like um, one department police department used a machine with rats nesting in it. Oh, and you know what those rats were also doing? Driving, driving the drunk. police car. <laughs> <laughs> Some departments use stale or even homemade chemical solutions that don't produce accurate results. And so, wow, homemade? What? Yeah, yeah, bonkers. Um, Home brewed. I th- yeah. do Home we have do we have time to steal you for a couple of for like a quick Patreon bonus episode? Sure, after sure, this? sure, sure. Get like squeeze one more story out. Sure. I think we so. We should yeah. do that, but uh, I think it's about time we wrapped up the main episode. Okay. Uh, where can our listeners find you, Chris? Um, you can find me online at chrisduffycomedy.com. Sweet. And uh, if you want a little bonus, just Google image search Chris Duffy, and you'll see me and professional bodybuilder Chris Duffy mixed all together. <laughs> Ooh, just to be clear, you're the bigger of the two. Yes, just to be clear, I'm the extremely tan, muscular man wearing less clothing than you expect. <laughs> uh, you, you or he are jacked. Again, I can't tell which one's yes. which. Both. Oh, we should have mentioned. I've been within a black box this entire episode, <laughs> yeah. and he hasn't seen my face once. And you might have heard a weird sound uh, every so often. That was just Chris tearing a phone book apart. <laughs> yes, yes. He's a quantum bodybuilder. It can't be known whether he is super jacked or normal jacked. I am either jacked or not yeah. jacked at not both times. Not, but both versions of you are jacked. Different How kinds dare of jacked. you? Yeah. Uh, and also, your podcast slash radio show can be... That- You're the expert, and um, you all the uh, episodes are online. Um, we haven't made a new one in a while, but they are uh, all up online, and you can find it anywhere that podcasts exist, I which is very, the internet. Yeah, I very much suspect if you're listening to this podcast, you will be a fan of that one as well. Yes, yeah, and I, just- I believe that... Uh, I believe that- Extreme quantum computing is online, but if not, many of the other ones are. We, in fact, even have an episode all about rats. So Excellent. You can listen to that. Yeah, uh, I just went to the website to check, check it out, and uh, lots of uh, lots of comedy greats on your panel. Oh, yes, we've, we've had some Scott amazing Adsett, people. Eugene Merman, Rory Scovel. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we've had a lot of great people on it. Uh, Aparna Nancherla, Joe Firestone, a lot of great people. A lot of great folks. Is that NPR's own... Um, um, oh, I can't. I pull her name. God damn it. Uh, correspondent and writer raconteur uh, Sarah Vowell Is that Sarah, Sarah Vowell, Vowell? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah Sarah Vowell has been on there as well um, so listeners check out Chris check out his podcast you can find us as always at probablyscience.com that's also where we post our show notes with links to all the articles we covered and videos and such like you can find us on Twitter at Probably Science, individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen. Also, Facebook slash Probably Science. Questions, comments, clarifications, stories you'd like us to cover can go to probablyscience at gmail.com. Write nice things about us on iTunes. The donation button and the Patreon button are both at probablyscience.com as well. We very much appreciate everyone who does that mm-hmm. and who spreads the word by telling people about our show. Thank you very, very much. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. This was a joy. Hey, it's been a treat. And thanks for listening. Thanks.